Genesis 26, this is the word of God. Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt, live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands, and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and will give them all these lands, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. Because he was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought, The men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped them, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerhar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, <clears throat> and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug, the dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herdsmen of Gerhar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, the water is ours. So he named the well Ezek because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna. He moved on from there and dug another well. And no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there, he went up to Beersheba. That night, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent 
and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerhar with Azuzath, his personal advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked him, why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we have found water. He called it Shebath, and to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and also Bismath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. We end our reading there. We thank God for his word to us. I don't know what you thought of when we read Genesis 26 together. It may seem to you a rather confusing chapter with disjointed stories tucked in between Esau selling his birthright in Genesis 25 and Jacob conning Isaac to get his blessing in next chapter 27. There's a story here, stories of, of uh, water wells and peace treaties and again, you know, the old trick of passing your wife off as your sister. A lot of this we've heard before, you might ask and think, and wait, what's it all about? Well, actually, you'll not be surprised to know this is an extremely important chapter. As we're reminded of the essential aspects of God's covenant relationship with his people, and we're given this big, big reminder of this in chapter 26 before we get into the chaos and the turmoil of the life of Jacob. Because we might forget that there is a story behind the stories, a story of God's covenant love with his people, which we're part of. Unless we forget about this covenant story, we're reminded again of how central it is. It's the only chapter where Isaac dominates the narrative. And therefore, in a kind of way, it's a summary of his life. It's almost like a flashback to key moments in his life that have not yet been reported in the Genesis narrative. It's a bit like, you know, when you watch one of those um, series on Netflix or whatever, you know, previously on, some of us remember previously on 24. If you're old enough, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's a bit like that. But as we think about what's going on in this chapter, we need to be at the back of our mind reminding ourselves of the expression, the, a chip off the old block. You know that old story, that familiar expression, or like father, like son? In the same way, but not in every way, Isaac was a chip off the old block. He, he failed and he succeeded, often in the very same ways, with the same things as his father Abraham. And of course, it's a reminder again that sometimes we learn lessons 
and sometimes we fail to learn lessons. But what we see here is that the covenant relationship given initially to Abraham has now been experienced by Isaac. And God wants that covenant relationship to be understood right down to the generations, to this present generation and beyond. We're going to see the recurring themes in this chapter of promise and blessing and protection. And there's a new one, a new one, presence. One commentator put it like this, and I hadn't seen this before. He said this, this is the first time that God's promise to be with someone is recorded in Scripture. Now, I hope he's right, because I've just said he's right. Uh, I, I can't think of it anywhere else in the Genesis story. This is the first time that God's promise to be with someone is recorded in Scripture. And ordinary Isaac receives this promise. It's a kind of the Emmanuel principle, God with us, which we remember at Christmas, but remember it's right throughout the Bible. Verse 3, I will be with you. Speaking of the future, verse 24, for I am with you. That's the present. And verse 28, from Abimelech, he's, Abimelech said, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. That's the past. We used to sing in my home church, God is always near me. Do, do, do you remember that old hymn? Uh, I can't remember much else of those lines. I didn't have time to look it up. But it's true. God is always near us. Every child of his Every place, every time to protect and bless his covenant promise is to be with his people. We've got to remember that. We've got to remember that. And uh, this is a life-changing lesson that surely should lift our hearts and our minds. And as, as Isaac followed in the covenantal steps of Abraham, what we're going to see is he sinned and needed forgiveness. He walked in faith and knew God was with him. He knew the special promises of God, just like his dad. And the point is, so can we. So can we. We can rest in the sure and certain fact that God is with us in exactly the same way. Especially for us, with the revelation of Christ coming and his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, we surely should know and never forget, God is with us. He came to us, and in salvation, he comes into us. He's with us in each stage of life, from birth through to death, and after death, into eternal life. He's with us now. He's with us forevermore. All these things jump out to us from Genesis 26. So where is he with us? He's with us even in our troubles. He's with us even in our troubles, verses 1 to 5. Now, I'm not going to point out how Abraham faced almost all of these experiences. I'll mention some. But hopefully it's obvious we should be hearing alarm bells ringing. Oh, we've come across that before. Abraham faced that. If you've been with us over the weeks, you will have heard it all. But notice in verse 1, 
it's very clearly stated, a famine again has hit the land. And we're reminded, of course, that this is a different famine from the famine of Abraham's time. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. So just like in chapter 12, verse 10, for Abraham, which is referred there in verse 1, we have another famine. Now, a famine in those days was life and death. It's, it was considerably more dangerous than the cost of living crisis and the recession that we face. With famine, you could die. Simple as that. And the temptation was always to panic. The temptation was always, where can we get help? And he goes, first of all, to Gerhar, king uh, and King Abimelech, and that was okay. But notice in verse 2, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt like your dad did. Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay where I tell you. Trust me, he's saying, and obey me. Then Isaac must have had his heart and soul lifted by the repeated promises made to his dad Abraham in verses 3 and 4. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Abraham had heard similar words in chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17. Now it's Isaac's turn to hear exactly the same promises. Would he trust? Or would he go like his dad to Egypt? God then reminded Isaac of his dad's example in, in, in obeying him most of the time. Graciously, by the way, he didn't remind Isaac of his dad's failure, like going to Egypt, no, but he's very gracious at verse 5, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. Notice me and my, five times. He obeyed me, he kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, my laws. He's really saying, Isaac, your dad set you a good example most of the time. He wasn't perfect, you know that. But he's okay most of the time. Fathers and sons, moms and daughters, parents and children, there's a lot in these verses to say to us about the way we should live and the legacy we should leave. You see, we Whatever stage you are at life, we should receive God's blessing because of our parents' faithfulness. That's the way it's supposed to be. Parents are supposed to be faithful, and children are supposed to be blessed. Now, sadly, it doesn't always work out like that. And I'm so very sorry for you if this is not your experience. I don't know your experience. I know mine. I've been reminded of it in recent days with my mum not being at all well. You can't rewrite history. I, I, I don't know what your history is, but you can't rewrite it. And it is difficult, although not impossible, to fix the sins and failures of the past. But So if you're a parent here tonight, 
And if your sin in this area can be repented of and damage fixed, then, then go for it. Go for it. But really, we can't do much about the past. We can do a great deal about the present and the future. I think the point is now, the present and near future, we've got to leave a legacy to our children and to our grandchildren. We've got to leave a godly example to all, especially in our our family. There are all kinds of blessings that we can leave to our children, and it really frustrates me, it really concerns me when sometimes parents and grandparents are more interested in economic blessings and educational blessing and physical blessing in, in, in terms of sporting success. And what trumps all of that, what trumps all of that is spiritual blessing that we should leave and give to the next generation. And so parents, give your children, give your children and continue to give your children a godly example, a godly legacy. And children, those of you who are children here, and we're all children to some degree, but those of you who are younger, Accept your parents' godly example and legacy. If that's what they are giving to you. Even in troubling times. Especially in troubling times. And folks, here's where the test often comes. In the famine situations of life, it's there that we make a mistake. It's there we get things wrong. It's there we prove to be faithless rather than faithful. And Abraham got it wrong sometimes. And Isaac was encouraged to get it right, and he did this time. But the point is, let's not get things horribly wrong when the pressure comes on. God is with us, even in our troubles. In fact, especially in our troubles. Some of you have been through illness. Some of you have been through loss. And God will sovereignly provide, you know that, God will sovereignly provide even in the likes of a famine. Will we trust him? So far, so good, you might say, Isaac, but, oh dear, He starts to get things wrong, but I think the second point is that God is with us even in our sin. Sometimes we think we sin separate from God, that we can put God off and then sin and then come back and put God back on again. No. And here we see a familiar story, don't we? Abraham lied about Sarah in chapter 12 and chapter 20. At least his lie was half true because she was like a half-sister But no such flimsy excuse was for Isaac. It was a downright lie, verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. Rebecca was a looker. Beautiful, stunningly beautiful woman. She's my sister. Of course she's your sister, isn't she? But of course, while his danger was reduced, her danger was increased. And Isaac failed to believe in God's presence and God's protection. And the first sign of danger, the first 
little hint of attack. What does he do? He panics. And he plays his dad's old lie. She's my sister. Cowardly, selfish, and faithless, isn't it? Now, you'd think that after the visit of of God to him in verse 2, and the call to trust and obey, and all the promises, that it would have added some kind of backbone to Isaac, but sadly, no. Maybe in his head, he believed that God was present with him, but in his heart, he was fearful. And I I often do, (laughs) I get this wrong. You know, in my head, I believe. But in my heart, I'm often fearful. We can have faith in theory and yet struggle in practice. And Isaac probably said, you know what? I I really believe he's going to be with me. And I I really believe he's going to protect me. And I really believe he's going to pull me through. But, 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 but. She's my sister, not my wife. I must sort this out myself. I, I must do anything to fix this. Even lie, even sin. I'll do anything to cover it up. And verses 8 to 11, we see how he's caught. (laughs) He's caught. The translators differ on what Abimelech actually saw from his window, but clearly there was some kind of romantic horsing around, we might say, a bit of flirting or curting, if that means anything to people of a certain age. And whatever they were doing, it wasn't a brotherly, sisterly activity. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis puts it like this. Abimelech probably said, to Isaac, I have a sister as well, and I don't kiss her like that. He's caught. Isn't that very sad when the world watches God's people sin? Isn't it so miserable when the world decries our behavior and points the finger and says, you hypocrite? Isn't it awful? When the world, when sinners, when the ungodly have to put us right. And it happens. We're being watched, you know, all the time. Our living is a constant witness. Our holy actions, by the way, when we're obedient to God, often ignored and very quickly forgotten. But once we sin, that's always noticed. And it's not quickly forgotten. But what was behind this action? Why did Isaac lie? Well, I think it must be just fear. You know, fear does strange things to us. Fear will have us doubt the presence of God to enable us. Um, doubt will have us uh, fear the, or, or doubt the power of God uh, to protect us. Uh, fear will have us doubt the plan of God to bless us. Fear. And we're all fragile in this area, are we not? Do you know what? I, I sometimes said this week, I thought, but what are the things I'm fearful of? You know, I, I give up when I got past 10, 10 things in my life right now that I'm actually quite fearful of. And yet every single one of them could be smashed by the fact that God is with me. Now, of course, there will be things that cause fear. We live in a broken world but we need to trust in the ever-present God and we need to pray constantly to our ever-present Savior. Now, here's the application, I think. Don't make the same mistakes 
your parents made. Don't make the same mistakes your parents make or made. Now, Isaac didn't go down to Egypt, and he didn't have a Hagar, but he did fall for this, my wife is really my sister sin. And it's very easy for us to follow the bad examples of our parents. They should set a good example, but often they don't. And we need not and should not follow their sinful example. For instance, you may be in a situation where your parents are particularly materialistic. Or as I mentioned earlier on, they're, they're just so besotted by sporting and academic success and really are not terribly interested in your spiritual maturity. That's of those of you who are younger. Or perhaps they don't attend church. Or maybe they never really serve in any part of church life. Or, or maybe they hold tightly to the things of the world and lightly to the things of God. Would you believe it? I wrote this down in exactly the wrong way. <laughs> so I hope I said it the right way. They hold lightly to the things of God and tightly to the things of the world. Now, you give lots and lots and lots of examples, but people influence us, especially family. But here's the point. We don't need to follow the bad examples of those who influence us. However, secondly, the problem is we are prone to sin exactly the same way. Don't, don't we see that? Don't we see that? Because their example is so very powerful and it's ever-present. It's hard to get away from it. It's just built into our memory banks or it's lived out right in front of us. But our ever-present God is the one to trust and to follow even when we're tempted to sin, even when we're tempted to follow the sinful example of loved ones. He's always present, even when we feel. We can't run away from him. He's present when we sin. But he's there to rebuke us, to call us back, to forgive us, and to renew us. God is with us even in our sin. God is with us even in our conflicts, 12 to 22. Abraham lied and yet became rich and successful. Like father, like son, the same happened to Isaac. In verse 12 there, there's a remarkable harvest in the midst of drought. One commentator said that he was ludicrously successful because, again, of the presence of the Lord. You notice at the end of verse 12, because the Lord blessed him. The presence of the Lord blessed him. And the success led to a number of things. You notice there in verse 14, envy and jealousy. Verse 14, I won't read the verses, but you can check them. Vandalism in verse 15. They basically um, just put rocks and dirt into the wells. And threat in verse 16. Move away from us. You've become too powerful for us. So we're seeing here conflicts. Isaac had no appetite to stay and fight, you'll notice. He sought to be a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. In the midst of um, famine and conflict, God's presence was, was very real to Isaac, and he decided to move on. And he kind of argued, you know, God is my sufficient one. I'm, I am satisfied in him. And he, and he moves further and further away and further and further out to avoid conflict. The Lord 
is my all-sufficient one. I don't need to stop and fight every time. And the names of these wells are a commentary on this conflict. You notice in verse 20, esk means contention. Verse 21, sitna means hostility. Eventually, the quarrels and the hostility stopped. Verse 22, he moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. The word Rehoboth means room. And Isaac said, now I have room to rest in God and to worship God. Conflict is guaranteed in this world. If we believe and if we witness, conflict will soon follow us. We'll either see it from religious false believers or worldly unbelievers, but it's going to come. Nobody likes conflict. Nobody welcomes conflict. But at home, at school, at work, in our friendship circles, even sometimes within the church. But here's the point. Even in the midst of conflict, strangely, we can know and enjoy him more. And he will give us room, room to enjoy him and to be blessed by him. And I think it's interesting, there's so much that we can't have time to say, but it's interesting that again, in the midst of the famine and in the midst of the conflict, Isaac keeps finding water. I mean, we've got to understand that in these situations, this was such a blessing. Again, the difference between living and dying. God is with us, even in our conflicts. What's going on in your life? Is there a series of conflicts, painful conflicts? You've got to look to the one who wants to give you room to experience him and to be blessed by him. We've only two more. God is with us, especially in worship, 23 to 25. From there, he went up to Beersheba. That night, again, another appearance. That night, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham, do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. A second theophany, as we call it, a second visitation, and a second declaration of his presence and his promise. Now, this statement of uh, of promise, of blessing, made in verse 2, verse 12, verse 24. So he was blessed. And when we're blessed, what should our response be? Worship. Worship. Like father, like son. Every time Abraham was blessed, what do we do? Build an altar and call upon the name of the Lord and worship him. Very often, the same thing that happened to both. They face conflict. God intervenes. God blesses them, and they're successful. They pitch their tent. They build an altar. And they worship. God expects that of you and me, to believe that he is with us and to believe that he is to be worshipped. And I don't think there's anything so beautiful and so powerful 
and so biblical and so faithful as meeting together to worship. I don't think there's anything in the world I'd far rather do. Thinking about a bucket list, you know, of things, I'd like to go to see the Mighty Spurs. I'd like to go and watch a test match of cricket. There's many things I'd like to do, but you know what I want to do as often as I possibly can is worship God with you folks. Not just to be here in body alone, but in spirit worshiping him. Not just a few blessed thoughts as we wade in and out of daydreaming, but spiritual worship, not just with our heads, but with our hearts. Are you getting the point? Calling upon the name of the Lord. I encourage you to keep coming to worship. Make it your priority. Because there's a special experience of his presence when we build an altar and call upon the name of the Lord. One of the encouragements of this week, you know, we, we do get many. We don't often broadcast them, but can I share one from one who's present here this evening? He texted me and said, among other things, I find myself counting down the days now until I get to go to church again. That's beautiful. And that should be what we all think because God is with us, especially in the worship. God is with us lastly by his peace, 26 to 33. God is with us there even in the midst of all of this. Abraham made peace with his neighbors because he was at peace with God. And Isaac faces the same opportunity. One, one commentator put it like this, based on Isaac's agricultural bonanza, his repeated discovery of wells, his increasingly um, his increasing influence and power, Abimelech's conclusion was absolutely right. God was with Isaac. Verse 28, they answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. And that led to verse 31. After they had a, a feast of the night before, early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way and they left him in peace. Ultimately, God's gift to us is peace. The life of faith is a life of blessing and a life of ultimate peace with him and in him. But here's the question. Can others see the Lord is with you? If people had to describe you in words or phrases, would they say, ah, oh, Alistair McNeely. Now, there's a man who just shows that the Lord is with him. Can the people who live around us and work with us clearly, clearly, clearly see that the Lord is with you? Now, this isn't going to be measured in our generation by the size of our herds of cattle and sheep. It's not going to be measured by how many water wells you can dig and own. It's not going to be measured by the number of descendants but I suggest it can be measured by how we deal with life and faith in a broken, fallen world, how we deal with disappointments, how we deal with pain and loss, how we deal with success and victory. What do people see when the rubber hits the road and things start to fall apart? Do they see 
that really we're no better than they are, or do they see that the Lord is with us? And we show by the way we live, by the way we exercise our faith, by the way we obey the Lord, that the Lord is with us. We show we really are at peace with God. Another way of putting it is, do we make life, family life, our service within the church, our place in the church, do we make it a sweet a sweet experience for everybody else because the presence of the Lord is with us and everywhere we go, we bring sweetness or do we bring bitterness? The final two verses point to the not-so-sweetness of faithless living rather than the sweetness of faithful living. Notice that? That's why it's, uh, it's a transition text to the next chapter. I think, uh, Jeff, you're on this one next week. You'll be picking it up from here. But let's read those verses. When Esau, I mean, Isaac couldn't even get a full chapter to himself. I feel sorry, but sorry for him, because even Esau squeezes into the last two verses. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and also Bismath, daughter of Elon the Hittite, they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. You see, Isaac, the presence of the Lord was with him and peace was with him. He brought, he brought sweetness. And here we have a contrast, Esau bringing bitterness. I suppose we might ask the question as we sort of started off with, who will inherit the blessing next? I mean, Abraham passed his blessing on to Isaac, not Ishmael. Who's going to be next from Isaac? Is it going to be Jacob? Or is it going to be Esau? We can see here it was never, ever going to be Esau. He deliberately embraces polygamy. He married outside the clan he basically just waved his fist at God and said, I'll do it my way. See, Isaac, again, is the way of blessing. Esau is the way of bitterness. And notice that last verse. They were a source of grief. It's the difference between the way of the Lord and the way of the world. That's why we put up Galatians 3, verse 9. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. That's what you're called to be. You're called to be a man, a woman of faith. You may not be wealthy. You may not have lots of land. You won't have maybe lots of wells, water wells. You may not even be a parent. But you will know and have the presence of God. Jesus said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the ages. He will be with us. He is with us. And therefore we can face anything. We can face everything. So just 
kind of um, padded extra chapter of water wells and treaties and, and lies? No. It's reminding us the covenant blessing of Abraham experienced by Isaac, but despite his weaknesses, will go on even to the rascal Jacob, as we will see in the weeks that lie ahead. And it goes right down and is with us, God's covenant people. And we've got to make sure we pass it on to our children. Father, uh, once again, this evening hour, we thank you for just the care that you have taken to give us this word and to give us these insights, and we are amazed. God with us, no matter what, the ups and downs, the good times, the bad times, times of holiness and times of sin, but especially in worship and through your peace. We thank you for it all. And we're blessed because, again, we have met with you and worshipped you this evening, and we pray that as we go shortly from this place back into that broken world, we will go with the peace and the blessing and the promises of God ringing in our ears. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.